Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Anselm Beach. As John said, I, I lead the singles ministry uh, for the downtown region in the Boston Church. And I am so incredibly grateful and so excited to be here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. The worship service has been incredible so far. You guys have been so hospitable. It was awesome getting to be with the Edge Ministry on Friday night. We had a great time. Let's clap it up for the Edge Ministry. It was cool getting to speak to the teens last night at Solid Rock. You know, I talked to them about, you know, the, the, the lesson for that was called This or That. And it was based off of that old song from the 90s. You can go with this and you can go, you know, all kind of stuff. So, you know, had to keep it a little hip there. But I was surprised by how many of the teenagers knew uh, that song, though like 90% of them weren't even born in the 20th century. That took me for a loop right there. You know, uh, you're going to get an opportunity to get to learn a lot about me today. I'm going to share many different things here. But I wanted to start off by sharing about uh, a relationship that I was in. Uh, that was at times very difficult. It was a love-hate relationship. It was seven and a half years that I was in this relationship. You know, but I wouldn't trade any of those years for anything because it shaped me into the man who I am today. Of course, I'm talking about my relationship with the Boy Scouts of America. (laughs) You remember my first time going to Boy Scout camp? I was like 11 years old or something like that, 10, 11 years old, and I wasn't incredibly excited to go. You know, the Boy Scout camp was hundreds of of Boy Scouts from all over the state of Arkansas, where I lived at the time, who were going to this place, this little town called Damascus, Arkansas. Uh, I can't make this up. Damascus. Who knew, you know? But, you know, it was going to be a week of hiking and cooking and, and camping and shooting bows and arrows and all these different things. It would also be a week of avoiding spiders and mosquitoes and, and ticks and spiders and mosquitoes. And I was not excited to go to Boy Scout camp that year. So I go, I'm away from my parents. It's like the first time I've had this extended period away from my family where it was just me in the wilderness, in the elements. And I was having a horrible time. I cried every single day, every single night. I was 11 years old, so, you know, give give me a break here. But, you know, I I cried every single night. And and finally, finally, on Wednesday, I told my scoutmasters, like, I can't do this. I have to go home. Can I please call my mom and my dad? So I called my dad up. I said, Dad, Mom, I can't do this. Please come get me. And my dad said, okay, okay, I'll come. So my dad and my mom and my sister hopped in the car, drove two hours from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, essentially, to come pick me up. And so they scooped me away, and I'm driving away. I have this like smug look on my face as I'm driving away from all my friends in Boy Scout camp, like, ha-ha, see you later, ha, you know, as I'm driving away. So we drove about 45 minutes, and we stopped at this gas station to get some gas. And, you know, I'm sitting in the car, just like this big old feeling, this wave of relief over my body. Uh, Then my dad comes out, gets in the car. He's sitting in the driver's seat with his hands on the wheel. And he just was like looking like he was very much deep in thought. I didn't notice. I was just happy to be going home. And then my dad just says, no. And he, again, I I don't know what that, I was like, no, what? Okay, whatever, you know. So he pulls out on 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 the road, drives back on the highway. You know, we're driving, you know, a little bit. And, you know, about half an hour in, I'm like, Things are looking kind of familiar here, you know? I'm like looking around like, is that a sign for Damascus, Arkansas? 
And this look of betrayal just came over my face. I turned over and I was like, Dad, what are you doing? And all my dad said was, I didn't raise a quitter. I did not raise a quitter. Let's clap it up for my dad, amen? He's right now. <laughs> no, um, you know, and I, I was, again, I started crying. I was like, no, please, I can't do this. Like, son, you're going to do this. I'm sorry. So he pulled into the camp. He drops me off. He's like, see you in a few days. <laughs> like, and gone, you know? And I had to sit there for the next few days at Boy Scout camp. You know, but I made it to the end of the camp. And, you know, I, I, actually, I actually got the most improved scout award. You know, because I went there. I was like, hey, this is my fate. I have to accept my fate. And so I might as well go for it, you know? So, uh, but I learned a valuable lesson that week in the wilderness of Damascus, Arkansas. And I learned that, you know, some of the greatest lessons in our life are learned in our wilderness moments. Those moments when we are in dire and desperate need. These are actually opportunities for immeasurable and valuable growth in our character and in our trust in God. Today we're going to look at, you know, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Elijah. We sang the song, I promise I didn't plan it, it was the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we're going to look at, you know, his story here in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's turn there real quick. We'll get the intro for his story. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Wow. Let me tell you what led up to this point here. One of the most epic chapters in the Bible. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. You know, Elijah had prayed to God for it to stop raining for three and a half years in the land of Israel. It didn't rain. Everything was dried up. It was desert. All that kind of stuff. And so, you know, people were looking for Elijah to kill him. And finally, Elijah's like, you know what? I'm going back because it's time to turn the people's hearts to God. So he goes back. He tells Ahab, like, Ahab, I'm coming and meet me at Mount Carmel. So they go to this mountain and it's just him, the only prophet of the Lord, at least in his mind, and uh, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, these different gods that the Israelites were, were worshiping. And he says, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. You're going to call on your God. I'm going to call on my God, the God of Israel, and we'll see what, whose God is real. So you guys are going to build an altar and you're going to sacrifice a cow. I'm going to build an altar and I'm going to sacrifice a cow. Then you pray to your God and call down fire. I'll pray to my God and the God who answers is God. So the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they're praying and they're calling out and they're babbling and they're cutting themselves and letting their blood spill and all kind of stuff for hours and hours and hours. And Elijah's making fun of them and cracking jokes at them, and, but no fire. Elijah stands up, prays for like two seconds. And oh, this is, by the way, after he douses the altar in gallons and gallons of water, which remember, it's a drought. So that's where he's getting the water from. I don't know. That's amazing. And... <laughs> So he prays and fire immediately falls on, uh, on these altars and consumes the cattle. You know, then all the people of Israel, when they see this, they like run away from the prophets and they get over to, you know, uh, to, to Elijah because they know something's about to go down. 
And Elijah goes and he kills all the prophets of Baal right then and there. These guys who had, who had wrecked the people of God. Then he goes to the top of the mountain and he prays. And it rains for the first time in three and a half years. And then my favorite detail, uh, Ahab takes a chariot to go back to the city and Elijah, with the power of God, outruns the chariot to get back to the city. It's amazing. So this was an incredible, an incredible moment in a, a victory, not only for God, but in Elijah's life. And so he returns to the city. Just like, hey, what's going to happen? Let's get all the people going to come up, the king and the queen. They're going to turn their lives. They're gonna, we're we're going to have the, a people of God once again. And yet, as we read here, when Ahab returns and tells Jezebel, his wife, about what's going on, Jezebel's like, you know what? I'm putting a hit out on this guy. We're going to kill this guy for all that he has done. Elijah had a choice. He could stay back and fight, or he could run for his life. And we're going to look at what he did today and what we can learn about our wilderness moments. The title for my lesson today is Wisdom from the Wilderness. All right? The first thing I want to talk about is a question. Who do you run to? Who do you run to? You like to sing? You didn't know, did you? No. Uh, so let's look back at the chapter. First Kings chapter 19 in verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. And in case you missed it the first time, the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he finally got the picture. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. You know, what did Elijah do when he was confronted with this threat against his life? He ran for it. He literally finds out his life is in danger and he literally runs for his life. But in a matter of days, he finds himself in the desert begging and pleading with God to take the very life he had just tried to, to save by running away. I mean, what else would you expect for running to the desert? You know, <laughs> running into the desert to save your life? Nothing lives there. But amen, you know, whatever. You know, we, we can look at, Jer at, uh, at Elijah there and think, dude, what are you doing? But don't we do the same thing sometimes? For who do you run to when your life is in danger? Spiritually and otherwise. Who do you run to when you are in dire and desperate need? You know, it takes him nearly dying before Elijah finally calls out to God. Only to say, God, take my life, please. But God had other plans. God actually strengthened him. God gave Elijah the strength to be able to journey 40 days and 40 nights to get to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the place where God first appeared to all the Israelites hundreds of years before uh, with Moses. You know, it's interesting. No one told Elijah to go to Mount Horeb. He chose to go there on his own. 
I think he knew that he should have gone there the first time. Just like we all know we should go to God the first time when we're, go- when we're going through stuff, right? But instead he went to the desert. Like I said, it's, inter- it's, it's easy to look at Elijah and they, they say, dude, what are you doing? Didn't you just see what God did through you? Just go to God. But I can relate to running to the desert instead of running to God. You know, around the time that I became a disciple, you know, my life was just a mess. You know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, maybe compared to somebody else, it wasn't as bad, but I definitely felt like it was a mess. You know, when I graduated from high school 10 years ago, by the way, whoo, time flies. I can't believe it, man. Some of you are like, oh yeah, whatever, 10 years ago. It was 100 years ago for me or whatever. <laughs> no, but like, you know, 10 years ago, wow. But when I graduated from, from, from uh, high school, you know, I was salutatorian, so I was number two in my class. You know, I, I, had, I applied to 12 different uh, colleges and universities and was accepted into every single last one of them. You know, I applied to six out of the eight Ivy League schools. I didn't apply to two of them because they weren't on the Common App and I didn't have time to fill them out. I was lazy. But, you know, but, and I got into all of those, you know. I had the most uh, scholarship money uh, rewarded to me uh, from all these different schools and the history of any student at my high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. And all these different things. And so my head was so big. I had such an ego. It's so weird because I had this ego, at least at, from an academic standpoint, and yet my self-esteem and self-value and self-worth was so low at that time because my identity was all based in being the best. And so when I show up, I chose to go to Harvard, and when I show up at Harvard, where I'm not just, you know, one of many other people who are also the best, but there are other people at Harvard who are better at being the best than I was. So I found myself lost. On top of that, my mom and my dad got divorced literally as I was going into college. You know, so my mom got, the, got divorce papers from my dad as we're about to drive from Arkansas to meet up with my, my sister and my dad who were in Virginia because my dad had just got a job there. So imagine the car ride from Virginia up to Boston where my mom, my dad, and I know what's going on. We hid it from our sister because she had just started school over there. You can imagine that. My life was falling apart. You know, I tried to turn to all these different things. I tried, I tried to turn to just fitting in. You know, I just, I just want to fit in. So I tried to find these different groups and found that, you know, the college lifestyle was not really for me. The idea of going to parties and, and, and doing drugs and getting drunk and sleeping around, that, that just wasn't my style. And so I found myself oftentimes on Friday and Saturday night listening to the, to the thrills of the night from other people who are out there having a good time while I'm alone in my room, like watching a movie, you know, and eating some ice cream, you know, like a, like a rom-com or something like that. But, you know, I found that that, that, was, that was tough and that was challenging, you know? I turned to many different things to try to find value and love and acceptance. I would go to the parties that I didn't want to go to. I turned to impurity, all these different things. And it just led me to getting deeper and deeper into the state of feeling lost. And you know what happened? I blamed God for it, actually. I was like, God, I've had all this faith. I've gone to church my whole life. You know, I've believed in you. I'm a real Christian because all these other Christians out there are doing all this other stuff. And I'm here not doing all this other bad stuff. You know, I'm doing a few things over here. But hey, God, no, don't look at that. Look at this. Over here, look at this. And I blamed, I found myself blaming God. You know, the, 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 the only person I had to blame was myself. Because who did I run to when I was in dire need? I ran away from God and tried to run to the world. 
I tried to run to the desert. You know, let me ask you all a question. Who do you run to when it's your turn? When you're in the moment, like Elijah here, where you're running for your life, when you're feeling pursued by the enemies of your thoughts, of your sin, Satan, or just even actual enemies, whether it's in the workplace or school or within your family, who, who do you run to? You know, some of us can run to sin. You know what sin is? Sin is missing the mark. It's when we try to get the blessings of God without God. It's like running into the desert thinking we're going to find sustenance, thinking we're going to find water, thinking we're going to find food, and finding that there's nothing there. If we instead choose to run to God, then it saves us from, a, from, from going to this desert and then blaming God for all the stuff that we're going through. How many times have you blamed God for something that you were going through? And then after he brought you through it and gave you the strength like he did to Elijah to turn towards him, you realize, man, if I had just gone to God in the first place, all this stuff wouldn't have happened. I'm glad I learned my lesson. That'll never happen again, right? <laughs> no, it happens all the time. And we need this constant reminder. You know, I want to look at a scripture in Isaiah chapter 30 real quick. And in Isaiah 30, verse 15, here's what it says. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the throat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. You know, this scripture here was written to the people because when they were being attacked, by, I think the Assyrians or whatnot, they turned to the Egyptians, these other people who they literally escaped from. They, they left them to be a free people. But they turned to those people for help rather than turning to God. And what God says to them, I love what it, how it says it in the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, you will be delivered by returning and resting. You know, we must learn to turn to God when we are in our wilderness moments. There is no lasting nourishment apart from God. Sin, worldliness, accolades and fame and wealth and all these different things, they offer empty promises. And if you run to those things, when you are in need, they will leave you high and dry. But when we turn to God, not only does he give us the strength to come to him, but he gives us rest and true deliverance and salvation. So I ask you again, who do you run to? The second question I want to ask you is, is the Lord your reward? Let's look back at the scripture in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19. Here we go. Continuing in verse 9b, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now 
They are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You know, what was Elijah's main complaint here? It could be summarized as follows. He said, he said, Lord, I've been zealous for you. And you have done amazing and incredible things through me in front of the people. You know, I prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And I prayed again and it thunderstormed. I outran a chariot. I called fire down from heaven. And when I returned to see what was going to happen, rather than your people turning back towards you, rather than me, them lifting me up as this amazing something or somebody else, I'm here running for my life, hiding in a cave in the mountain while your people have, run, have, have turned from you. Now I'm all alone. All the prophets are dead. And here I am. I did not sign up for this. How many of us can relate to where Elijah is right now? You know, I can relate. Next month, I will be, next month will be eight years since I said, Jesus is Lord on July 17th, 2009. You know, I've been in the ministry for about six years. I went into the ministry after I graduated from, from, you know, Harvard to much to the disappointment of my parents. You know, obviously, you go to Harvard, you get this Harvard degree. I have classmates who are probably making, you know, six figures here in New York City, you know. And, you know, I'm leaving all that stuff behind to go into the ministry. Now, it's been an awesome six years in the ministry. It's been an awesome eight years as a disciple. I've had a chance to do wonderful things, experience incredible things. I got to go to Mexico City in March. You know, I got to go to Dallas, Texas in April, you know, that's, that's still awesome. That's still a great place. But, you know, all these different events. I get to come here to New York City. Hey! I was a Yankees fan before I was a Red Sox fan. True story. Some people are like, yeah, oh, oh wait, what happened? No. But anyway, you know, so anyway, I've had an incredible stuff. But you know what? Eight years is a long time. Some of you guys out there who've been disciples for like three times as long as I've been a disciple are like, wow, you're so old, eight years. But eight years is a long time. Can I get an amen? You know, I don't ask God for much. I don't. I just want two things in my life. Two things. One, I want my family to become disciples. I've wanted that from the day, from day one. The moment when I realized that I was lost and that my family was probably lost, I wanted them to become disciples. And the second thing, is I want to start a family of my own. Single people, are you with me out there? You know? And it's been eight years. And sometimes it feels like, man, my family is no closer to becoming disciples, and I'm no closer to starting my family of my own. And I'm like, God, I gave up everything for you. I've kept myself pure. I've I've disappointed my parents so I can go into the ministry for you, and I'm still here alone. My family members still think that what I'm doing is foolish. It's been eight years. 
I did not sign up for this. You know, I was reading my Bible the other day, which is a great thing to do. Read your Bible. And in Psalm 73, I found a guy who could relate exactly to me. So let's turn there real quick. Psalm 73. This is written by Asaph, you know, uh, and he's writing about feeling the same way. You know, in verse 13 of Psalm 73, it says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. See, he felt the same exact way. He looked at how all the wicked people in the world, they had no care in the world. They were wealthy. They were fat. You know, he said, he said, no, because they were able to eat more than he was able to. And he was you know, commenting on all these different things. And he said, look, God, surely in vain I've kept myself, my heart pure. Surely in vain have I served you because I'm doing all this good stuff here. And yet <laughs> I'm in destitution. But look what he says here. He says, I spent, some, I spent time in your sanctuary and I found out what really happens. And he goes down to verse 21. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Every time I read that scripture, I'm like, how? How, God? How, Sway? I think, you know, some of you guys got that. No, no but how, God? How? How can I be like that? How can I get to the point where I desire nothing but you? You know, it's amazing. Elijah was looking for a reward that was not the Lord. You know, he came to the mountain of God where the first time, where, the first time where God showed up to the Israelites, right? How did he come? The earth was, was moving and shaking. There was fire on the mountain and there was a storm going on. All the ways that he thought God might appear to him here, God didn't appear to him the way that he did before. But it was in this gentle whisper where God had been speaking to him the whole time. I'm here. God used so many things in his life. I think sometimes we as disciples, we're sitting there looking for God, for the miraculous signs of God, when God is right here saying, I am the reward. The signs point to me. Come to me. I'm here. You know, God never shows up the way that we expect it sometimes. And sometimes that's what we find, we find ourselves looking for, uh, for the reward elsewhere. Like Elijah, because we're expecting God to show up in this one way. And God's like, no, I don't do that. I work on my time and you've got to come to me. You know, I wonder how Elijah would have felt if he knew that in just a few days or weeks or however many, time, however many uh, years or months it was from this, that he'd be taken up in a chariot to heaven. He would have walked right up to Jezebel. I was like, I'm here, yo, let's go. You know, he wouldn't have been like, God, where are you at? Like, Isn't that amazing? But we as disciples, if you are a disciple, that means if you have believed in God, you've repented, and you've been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we have a hope just like this. We will resurrect with Christ one day. What can man do to us? You know, what what would a million dollars do that a resurrecting with Christ in glory can't do for eternity? 
You know, if you're not a disciple yet, maybe you're studying the Bible, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're like, what is a disciple? If you don't know what a disciple is, you're probably not one. But that's okay. You can figure it out. Turn to the person who invited you here. Hey, come talk to me afterwards, and I'll tell you what the Bible says. We have to look at what the Bible says about how to become a disciple. But if you're not one, then what is your reward? Things that death are going to take away from you anyway? Like, we have to learn to seek after God and have him be our reward. Amen? And finally, the last thing I want to talk about is being on your own, but not alone. All right, here, let's, look at, let's finish off the, uh, the story here in verse 15 of 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. Hey, check that out. Damascus, Arkansas, that's where they were. Let's go back, go to the desert of Damascus. I can't make this up. It was the Holy Spirit right there. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. You know, Elijah thought that he was alone. And physically, he was alone, yes. But he felt this crushing loneliness. All the prophets are dead and gone. But God took a second to encourage him and say, you may be on your own right now, but you are not alone. Not only do you have me, but there are all these people here who you can rely on. First of all, he wasn't the only prophet left. If you look in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 later, you'll find out about a man named Obadiah who had hidden a hundred prophets in a cave to keep them safe from Jezebel. And, and, and Elijah knew that. But sometimes, you know, you can have so many people around you, a wonderful family around you, and still feel completely lonely. We've got to recognize and see that we may feel like we're on our own, but we are not alone. A hundred prophets, people who had gone through the same exact thing he has gone through. You know, who are the hundred prophets in your life? The people who have gone through the same things that you have gone through. Do you know them? Do you know the people here in this room? I don't know if you know them. I'm asking you. Do you know the people here in this room? You know, it's time to start having deep relationships and connections with each other. Talk to each other and realize there are people who have gone through the same exact stuff, going through the same exact things as you are. That's an opportunity to connect and to be together, to go through it together. You know, he mentions, uh, the Bible here, God mentions uh, Elisha, you know, and we know who Elisha is. He's going to be an incredible man of God, having a double portion of Elijah's spirit. You know, Elisha was somebody who in a few verses later would give up everything that he had to follow Elijah everywhere that he went. And we have that, an opportunity to have that here too. You know, I have been blessed. I always wanted a best friend. I loved watching the TV show Scrubs, you know, the TV show Scrubs and I really related to, to JD, you know, the main character, Zach Braff. But I loved his friendship with Turk, you know, his, his you know, surgical intern buddy, you know. Uh, and I wanted something like that. And, you know, for many, many years, I strove to try to find that in the world. And, you know, I, I got close, but I've had no relationships like the ones that I've had to have here, that, that I've, that I've uh, received here in the kingdom of God. Best friends who not only do we have fun together, but we relate to each other on a deep 
level. God has given these people to me and they have directed me back. When I wanted to run to the desert, they'd be like, no, the Lord is your award. And they directed me back. You need people like that in your life. And if you don't have that, pray for it. But even ask somebody or consider, what must I do? What kind of person must I become to welcome people like that into my life? You know, they had Jehu, right? Jehu was a guy who, you know, a few chapters later, he's going to eventually go and completely wipe out Ahab's family and all that kind of, so it's kind of, it's kind of, the Old Testament was wild. It was like the wild, wild west out there, you know, but, uh, that's what he's going to do. And he talked, he, uh, Jehu himself refers to it as his zeal. Come and see what my zeal will accomplish. He says a little bit later, you know, sometimes you need a Jehu in your life too. Someone's going to come up to you and speak real to you. It hurts. It doesn't feel good, but someone's going to be like, oh, I don't care about, you know, you need to change and repent, bro or sister, you know, like you need it. We need people like that in our lives. You know, there are people who have seen me at my worst and have called it out and it has been hard and challenging. And, you know, I'm sometimes I don't like them all the time, but I love them and I love God and I'm so grateful for placing them in my life. You know, there may be Jehus out here who are trying to reach to you. But you might be a little bit too hard-headed or too hard-hearted to let them in. We have to be humble. And, not, and see, these people aren't trying to hurt you or harm you. But out of love, they're trying to help you to be more like Jesus. You need to welcome these people in, their li- in your lives. And finally, the 7,000. Right? These 7,000 people that, uh, that God said to Elijah, there are still 7,000 people out there who have not bowed down to Baal, who have not kissed him. 7,000 people. They need you, Elijah. They need you to get up from this mountain and go back and, and give them hope and preach to them. You know, you guys live in a city of, what, 8, uh, 8 million people, 12 I don't even know, 5 billion people. <laughs> and there are people out there who don't want anything to do with God. And amen. But there are, seven, there are people out there. It's a small, it might be a small number. It might be a small fraction of the people out there. But there are people out there who are fed up with the world. They're tired of running into their desert and finding no nourishment and finding, and finding no, no morsels of nutrition. There are people out there who are, who are tired of looking for their reward in, in the world and are just waiting for someone to come up and say, hi, excuse me, I'm inviting people to my church. Would you like to come visit? You know, someone, that's so easy to say, right? We've got to be the ones who go out there and find them because we may feel like we're on our own sometimes, but we are not alone. Amen? In conclusion, you know, I want to talk about the legacy of Elijah. You know, many, many years later, when Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Out of all the people in the Bible that they could say, David, Moses, Abraham, Samson, all these different people, who do they say? One of the prophets, like Jeremiah or Elijah. You know, what if Elijah knew when he was sitting there in that cave, one day the Messiah, the Messiah will be called like me. Wow. But you know, Jesus fulfilled all of the, the, what Elijah foreshadowed, and we can even look to him for more. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. We'll close out in this scripture here. Hebrews 12 in verse 1 says the following. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Wow. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, it's because of Jesus that we can approach God, that we can run with confidence to the throne of grace and mercy and cry, Abba, Father, to our God. It's because of Jesus that we can do that. It's because of Jesus that we too have a joy like him. He, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. And because of Jesus, for the joy set before us, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the hope of being with him forever, we could go to him as our great reward rather than the world here. Because of Jesus, you know, not only do we have a cloud of witnesses throughout the history of the Bible of people who had faith and turned to God, but you have a cloud of witnesses right around you of people who God has healed, hearts that have been broken, that were broken, that have been mended, lives that have been lost, that have been saved because of Jesus right here because of his sacrifice. But not only that, because he resurrected from the dead, came back to life, scorning its shame, and sits at the right hand of God. I hope that this sermon has been encouraging to you. I hope that you've learned a lot that from our wilderness moments, we can grow in such great character and grow to trust in a God who is our very great reward. Amen? I'm going to pray for the communion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, your son and for his sacrifice. Thank you so much, God, that we have this Bible that is full of people who are regular, everyday, ordinary men and women just like us. But through their faith in you, something within them that drew them to, 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 to come to you, God, you were, they were delivered. Thank you for Jesus, who is the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of your word, who came and who lived his life here perfectly, who gave up the riches of heaven so you can come to live on earth as a human being, to be weak, and ultimately to die one of the most excruciating and humiliating deaths of all time, but to be resurrected again. It's because of him that we can come to you and that we have each other. God, thank you so much, and we ask uh, that you please bless the, the bread and the cup as we remember your sacrifice and your resurrection. We love you, and it's your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.